Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Sean, I think we have an awesome show lined up for today. Very interesting, timely topics, as usual. You know, we're going to start off talking about the Trump economy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been pretty good, hasn't it? How does it compare? That's the question. How does it compare? Because, you know, there are good economies and bad economies, and I think the president has certainly some effect on that. But, uh, you know, I mean, how does it compare to other presidents? So we're going to take a look at that. There's a great article here out of Reuters and um, talks about the comparison and the actual numbers compared to the last few presidents. So we'll dig into that. Some very interesting information. Yeah, we're going to follow that up with a uh, discussion of extreme loss aversion is not a retirement strategy. And Steve, we, we do run across folks that are um, that are scared about the markets. Markets obviously have done well uh, this year and last year. And um, some people, believe it or not, are still in cash from the 2008 drop. That was such a traumatic event for them that um, they are just completely, you know, avert to any fluctuation at all. And there's some consequences to that, but we're going to look at why people get in that situation and some things that you can do to maybe unwind that. Yeah. It might be time to move out of cash if you're still hanging out there after eight years. Um, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey smart investor pro with over 20 years experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go to our website, moneymd.net. You can get those podcasts. You can also go back and listen to the uh, historical podcast. We have it um, categorized by different topics. And we also have a lot of videos, Steve, of various topics. We get questions uh, all the time about... Uh, markets and budgets and long-term care insurance and things like that. So we've we've uh, done some recordings and we have that out there. So check that out. And we even have a retirement projection yes, we uh, do. program on there. That's so a pretty neat in. little tool. Yeah, give you a good glimpse of kind of where you're headed for retirement. Um, and so do check us on our website, but send us your questions as well. We'd like to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or you can uh, link to us on the website and send us your questions through the website. We're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from Barron's. Um, and um, interesting, Steve, uh, Wall Street equity uh, strategist. Um, you know, these these guys do this for a living, been doing it for decades. A lot of information, all the information available to them. And, and last year in December, just one of 10 of these um, Wall Street strategists forecasted the end of the year value for the S&P 500 to be above 2,500. And um, as of recently, it was about twenty five seventy five. So, you know, wow. the year's not over, right? Right. So they could certainly be right. They could drop back. But it looks right now that they're going to be completely wrong. So only one in 10 forecasted it to be above 2,500, and it's significantly above that right now. Yeah, it's interesting. The S&P 500 started the year about 2238. So that's about a 12% rise um, to, to get above 2,500. And only one in ten predicted that, which is kind of surprising to me because it's a pretty, 
you know, it's not that huge of a rise for the market. It's just a decent year, anything above 10 in my book. Um, so, yeah, they tend to be kind of bearish whenever they make these predictions at the beginning of the year. Well, and, and at the end of the day, nobody knows, right? That's um, it. Don't make decisions based on forecast. Pe- people don't know. There's no way for them to know um, they're, they're going to be wrong more than they're right. That's what the, the data shows us. So um, not really surprising that um, they missed it, but they missed it big. They really like. did. Interesting. We'll see where it finishes up. Be interesting. Two months here. Mm-hmm. But fourth quarter is usually pretty good. It is. So We've got Santa Claus rally too, right? Exactly. There you go. There you go. All right. Speaking of Santa Claus, the Trump economy, <laughs> you know, how does it compare? Um, yeah, this is an article out of Reuters. Uh, Rex Nutting is a gentleman that wrote this. And uh, so we're kind of basing it on that. But, you know, I mean, it is interesting to look at the numbers because, I mean, there's one thing that Donald Trump does do a little bit. He he does tend to talk a little bit about how he's helped the economy and stock market and everything else, right? You're saying he brags a little bit? Right. Ooh, yeah. A little, yeah. little braggy. Yeah, little braggy. He does. Yeah, he does, definitely <laughs> tweets a little bit on that stuff. Tiny bit. Yeah, if there's one thing about President Donald Trump that everyone can agree on, it is he does love to tout his accomplishments. You know, it might be safe to say there's been no president that's made reference to his influence on the economy and the stock market more than Trump has in the past nine months. And he's particularly proud of how the stock market has done. And rightfully so. The stock market's done pretty darn good since, you know, he was elected. But he also talks about job growth and economic growth since he was inaugurated on January the 20th. And it's been over nine months since uh, that day in January. So it is a good time to kind of grade how the market and the economy are doing. Yes, the stock market's at record levels. And it's done very well since January and particularly since he was elected. Um, But, you know, how unusual are those gains is one question. And also, how good is the job growth compared to the past? What about the domestic, you know, gross domestic product? How is that doing? At this point, we've got numbers on about nine months of stock market gains, um, eight months of job growth, and two quarters of GDP growth. So they took a look at that, how the stock market did in every nine-month period over the last 25 years. And they looked at unemployment growth in every eight-month period, and they looked at GDP growth in every two-quarter period. So here, how those, here is how those numbers stack up this year. Um, at the beginning of Donald Trump's term. Yeah, so the stock market. Um, so since the inauguration back on January the 20th, I mean, clearly the market has done very well. And um, certainly the past year since his election, uh, has done fantastic. I mean, some of the indices are up over you know 20% since um, the election. Having said that, you know, there have been plenty of periods with similar performance um, over the past several presidents. So that's not really that unique. Uh, what is a little unique, though, is how it correlates with his election last November. That's when the markets took off. I mean, if you remember that um, that night, how the futures, the Dow futures were dropping right. significantly mm-hmm. as he was starting to win. Um, I had an uh, email from a client at 3 o'clock in the morning saying, get me out of the market, get me out of the market. Yep. We talked to him the remember next that. day, and it, it broke even at about 10 o'clock, and then it turned positive from there. Um, but, you know, if you look back at history – there's been corrections, so it'd be very surprising if there wasn't a correction, which means the stock market down 10%. At some point over the next couple of years, it's very unlikely that it won't happen. But the first nine months, Steve, it's hard to argue with the results. They've, they've done pretty well. Particularly since the election, you know, and I think that's the part that, that I mean, people are giving him a lot of credit for is that as soon as he was elected, 
you know, the sentiment turned and the market started up and it correlated so highly with his election that it, it was a little uncanny. So, but yeah, since January 20th, since he was inaugurated, the S&P is up 12.8%. And that is better than a nine-month period, um, only about a third of the time since 1992. Uh, so it's not that incredibly unusual uh, the best nine-month period was between April and December 2009 when the S&P soared 46%. But that was coming out of the Great Recession, you know, and that was in the end of Bush's term, the beginning of, uh, uh, well, that was the beginning of Obama's term, actually. You know, but the worst period was the nine months just before that in July 2008 through March of 2009 when it fell um you know, a lot. It 40, fell. 44%. 44%. Exactly. It's a big number. Yeah. The market was, you know, uh, better than it is now, uh, about 46% of the time while Bill Clinton was president, but about 34% of the time under Obama and 14% of the time under George Bush. So clearly Trump's stock market is better than average and doing very well. I mean, anyone would have to give him an A plus on the stock market growth since his election. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, we talked about this before we started a little bit, is, you know, presidents um, certainly can influence um, markets a little bit. I think it's more of the attitude and the um, the approach towards businesses that's very positive now, and, and certainly, um, you know, the earnings are doing well for companies, and the tax reform people are very excited about. So, yeah, it's been a really good nine months. And another thing, Steve, is job growth. I mean, it's generally been faster than it um has been historically the uh, the we're near, near full employment with only a four point three percent unemployment rate. I just thinking back on that when it was ten percent back in oh eight and oh nine. So we've come a long right. way during that time. And considering the mature phase of the expansion that we're currently in with with a very low unemployment, uh, the job market's been pretty strong, averaging about one hundred forty thousand net jobs a month since January. Another way of comparing growth is on a percentage basis um, over the eight months. And in that case, uh, it's about 0.8%. So job growth has been better uh, over an eight-month period, about two-thirds of the time since 1992. Uh, It was better 97% of the time under Clinton, 73% uh, under Obama, and 37% of the time under Bush. So um, pretty pretty strong growth, but we're we're at full unemployment. Which yeah, is- right. Yeah, they give them kind of a mixed grade here. Um, but, you know, still, I mean, if you're considering where we are in the economy, it paints a little bit different picture. I mean, the best job growth of the past 25 years was the eight months between March and October 1994, when payrolls increased 2.4%. Um, the record actually is back in 1941 when it was 10%. Well, that was when we were leading up to World War II. Um, so there was a huge, you know, buildup that was happening. The worst period for jobs in the past 25 years was a 3.9% decline in the eight months ending April 2009 uh, under both Obama and Bush during the Great Recession. So, you know, as you would expect. Having said all of that, though, the job growth is very healthy given the mature expansion phase that we're in. So we'd have to give Trump about a B-plus on job growth, you know, so far in his term. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it's doing pretty well for this this point in the uh, economic cycle. So the next one here is GDP growth. <clears throat> you know, the economy grew faster than it has under Trump only about half the time since 2001. 
The economy grew at 2.1% annual rate in the first half of this year, and it's expected to maintain that trend um, and perhaps a tick higher for the foreseeable future. It's grown faster than about two-thirds of the time since 1992, faster than that. Um, but, you know, most of those faster periods were in the 90s. And the best two-quarter period was at the end of 1999 when it grew at six over 6% uh, pace. The worst two-quarter growth was about 6.8% decline at the end of 2008 and the beginning of 2009 in the Great Recession, as we just mentioned, under Bush and Obama. You know, growth was faster, <clears throat> about 2.1% growth through the first half under Obama and Bush, uh, 43 overall. Um, and growth was 90, faster 91% of the time under President Clinton. You know, but the conclusion, though, on GDP growth, John, <clears throat> is that the economy is growing about average at 2.1%. That ranks right in about the middle of the recent presidents. So we'd have to give him about a B on on GDP growth. Certainly nothing wrong with the growth we're seeing. Yeah, I think if uh, if they get the tax reform in, you know, they're talking about getting the GDP growth up significantly. So, um, but, you know, one of the conclusions, Steve, I think you'd have to draw from this is, is everything's pretty good. It's, it's certainly not the greatest ever. Um, certainly the stock market has done very well so far this year and particularly since the election. And, you know, there have been some periods in the past that have recorded faster growth, more hiring, uh, certainly larger returns in the stock market, and some periods were, were worse than recent performance. So in other words, there, there are, you know, bear and bull markets and recessions and expansions. Right now, we're in a bull market. The economy is expanding about average for this phase of the economy, and hopefully the tax reforms will boost that and get that going a little bit faster as well. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> this is a phase of the economy that, you know, the president might have some influence on, but he certainly doesn't control. I mean, having said that, the markets, you know, do appear to be taking some vibes from the president's attitude about regulations and future tax heights, and that translates into confidence about future growth. <clears throat> and with that, that backdrop, you know, corporate earnings have been very strong, and that's continued to propel the stock market and make room for more gains. So, you know, who knows if the market will continue to keep up these double-digit gains as it has in the past couple of years. I mean, it's relatively easy to see big gains right after the, a, a bear market. But, you know, at this point, the market is much closer to a mature expansion that's growing a little bit long in the tooth. You know, from an economic standpoint, the country seems to be in a phase of kind of mediocre growth, and that's difficult to break out of. I mean, at this point, it seems foolish to count on a lot faster growth in jobs or GDP. Um, you know, it's easiest to add jobs when the unemployment rate's high and we're coming out of a recession, as we saw, you know, eight years ago. So, so, so far, though, the economy and the markets are on Trump's side. Things are good, but not the greatest ever. But, you know, the cycle continues, and we will certainly see a down point, uh, downturn at some point in the future. Um and then we'll likely see a recovery in similar fashion as we've seen in past That's market cycles. The way it works. That is the way it works. So good topic. All right. And that leads us up here to the question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with inflation. And uh, the question is, is when planning for my retirement, do I really need to inflate my income over time? And um, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, if you look at a three and a half percent inflation rate, you know, over the course of, you know, 17 to 18 years, your spending power is going to be cut in half. That's right. So if you have an $80,000 income going into retirement, it's going to feel like 40. So, 
you know, that's one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they don't put the inflation factor into their um, analysis. And, you know, I, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about the um, uh, Westinghouse pension people that retired in 1989 have not got a, an inflation adjustment in 25 years. And Ouch. it it just doesn't spin like it did back in 1989. So absolutely, you got to take into account inflation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, over 20 or 30 years, I mean, you'd lose 40 to 59% of your buying power at a 3% rate of inflation. So inflation is a huge deal in retirement. You have to plan for it. And that's one reason why annuities don't work that well you know, when you start talking about long periods of time because they don't build in inflation, you know, when you're talking about a fixed annuity. So, all right, that was a great question. And that leads up here to our next topic, and that is the loss aversion. It's not a good retirement strategy, is it? It's not. It's not. This is uh, from a gentleman named John Riley from uh, Cornerstone Services. Um, And, you know, Steve, no one wants to lose money, right? Uh, Loss aversion... Um, you know, it can be a prudent part of an investment strategy. You can be conservative in parts of your portfolio, but when it goes to extremes, it certainly can hurt retirees more than it helps. So when, when planning, you know, for the future, uh, retirees sometimes can succumb to extreme loss aversion. That's basically clinging to their money like a passenger you know, was holding on to the Titanic uh, or one of those floating planks of wood. So you can squeeze it too much and, and um, you know, hold on to it. And there's several reasons that we see people have this extreme loss aversion. And, and the first one is, is that's all they have. Yeah, that's right. I would just say, though, before we jump into this, we probably ought to define, you know, a little bit about, you know, what extreme loss aversion would be, you know, and it would be some, it'd be an all fixed, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be like putting all your money in the bank and a CD or something making two or 3%. Um, you know, max, um, it wouldn't be balancing your portfolio out and maybe 50% stocks. So when we say extreme loss preserve, uh, version, we're talking about going to the, the far side mm-hmm. of conservative. Yeah. And also probably sometimes, you know, making, uh, market decisions based on emotions. Um, you know, we, we, we do work with people that are all in cash and they have been for a number of years and, uh, it's it's tough to to pull them out of that that vision that they have. Um, one reason is is um, you know that's all they have, right? So extreme loss aversion right. can come from the realization that you know this is it. They they they've worked hard over time. They have a pile of money that needs to last the rest of their lives. There's no more coming in other than maybe Social Security. Um, they've retired, and now the reality of the fact is um, that they don't want to risk losing their money um, in the market and. Some people view the market as like uh, gambling. That's it's not historically it's not been like that unless you're in individual stocks. That's right. Right. I mean, markets certainly go up and they go down, but over time they have gone up. But they have. It's that mentality of this is all you have can create that extreme loss uh, aversion. Yeah. Another reason that people you know tend to succumb to extreme loss aversion is they have family members that can influence them. You know, family members that are worried about them. You know, with the best of intention, you can have sometimes adult children of retirees can talk to their parents about staying safe and, you know, being concerned about their parents' financial well-being. They'll warn them of the dangers of investing and how important it is to preserve what they have and kind of talk them into being in an extreme position of all fixed and not worrying about inflation. And they just don't have the background to really give them that perspective of, hey, you know, mom, dad, you still have 20, 30 years to plan for. Let's let's think about you know, growing your money too, to keep up with inflation. Yeah. Another, uh, item here, Steve is, which I think is probably one of the biggest ones is really a lack of education. 
uh, you know, for a lot of retirees, investing is, is confusing and they can have, you know, half a million dollars, quarter of a million dollars, a million dollars we see in, in retirement plans, and they really have no idea what to do. They really don't even know where to start. And so they've never been educated on how to create a portfolio that's diversified that you can get income off of. Um, they really haven't even been educated on what an income investment is. So instead of educating themselves, they freeze and they do nothing. Um, so that lack of education, I think, you know, we do a, a good job of um, imparting our knowledge historically with our clients and letting them know what we have seen. No one can predict the future, but understanding a little bit about history can help you um, get through some of the difficult markets and, and stay away from that extreme loss aversion. So education is a big one or lack of education. Uh, another one here on the list, Steve, is a, a previous bad investment. I mean, just about everyone has made a bad investment at some point in their uh, investing lives. Yeah. You know, but if it's one where the investor, you know, first investment went bad, it can leave the person with investment phobia, uh, where they think every investment will perform like that bad one. So, uh, you know, I agree with that. I think people, you know, maybe were, and I, I would say 2008 was probably a, a bad experience for most people. It and was. They didn't handle it right. If they didn't do some buying or rebalancing, then it, it could have turned out very negative for them. And some people, as a result of that experience, are just af deathly afraid of it again, you mm -hmm. know, and they have, everybody has hindsight bias, right? So they think of that one thing they lost all the money on and that bad experience they had. And sometimes that, that kind of colors their future for another 10 years out in the future, simply because they went through, you know, the, the great financial crisis of 2008. So another one here, though, is not understanding the difference between loss and volatility. You know, I mean, values do go up and down, John. That's what the markets do. But some retirees, they don't really understand that. Some retirees think that if an investment falls, um, that they're going to lose everything, you know, and they can't really separate the, the idea of volatility of investments going up and down with the potential for it to completely go to zero. And, you know, when they receive their monthly statement, um, they'll look at it. And if the market was down a bit, you know, and they don't see their portfolio, uh, up, they see their portfolio maybe down a thousand dollars. They kind of see it as they've lost a thousand dollars, and it's kind of that savings account mindset. You know, if your savings account declined by a thousand dollars, certainly it's probably not coming back. You know, it, money went for for something, mm -hmm. it came out for some reason. But they don't understand that investments <clears throat> typically go up and down. That's what they do, and there is volatility. And, you know, markets have always recovered throughout history. And so if it's down due to the market, you know, if you hang on to it, and if it's well diversified, it's probably going to recover. Yeah. I like the way of looking at shares. The number of shares someone has doesn't yep. change, right? Yep. They have the, That's a good way of looking at it. And if they put some money in there, they can buy more shares at a cheaper price. So, um, you know, volatility is a part of the market. Um, another one here on the list, Steve, is they don't know who to trust. I mean, many retirees have no idea who they can and cannot trust. And with the financial world the way it is today, I mean, who can blame them? Uh, you know, there's bankers, brokers, insurance agents, partnership salesmen. They all make their products sound good, but they um, they know that their Uncle Charlie um, always complains about his annuity. And, you know, Cousin Joe complains about his broker. And, uh, you know, there's always issues. You got to find the right um, company, the right person, and understand a little bit about the strategy to have some some confidence in this crazy world we live in, because there is going to be volatility. So finding someone you trust is a very important uh, piece of this puzzle. So so why is extreme loss aversion not a strategy? I mean, first of all, a strategy implies action, right? So extreme loss aversion, basically you're in cash or, or equivalent. 
Um, second, as a retiree, you need to live off that income um, generated by your money. So if it's in cash or maybe it's in a CD, um, it's not earning very much. So when you pull out $3,000 to live on and that money is only earning a couple of hundred dollars, you're going to have to dip into the principal um, for the rest of it. So you're going to deplete that principal over time, and it really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're going to guarantee yourself that you'll lose money every single month. So, you know, that is not a good strategy. We do see people in cash and purchasing power goes down and um, it can be very challenging on them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, how long do you plan on living? You know, what what's your life expectancy? Because if the rate you're going in the example that you just mentioned, you know, you're depleting your assets by $30,000 a year. So if you had 30000 if you had maybe $300,000 in your retirement account, in less than 10 years, you're going to be broke. So then what? You know, so you have to have a plan and you have to probably make more than you're going to make in CDs. That's really the point there. Yeah. And so from a financial planning standpoint, you know, we look at uh, mid 90s as, um, uh, you know, lifespan for folks coming in. If you're 65, I mean, it's, it's really about 84 or um, 85 years old. So um, you got to look at your, your lifetime and, and where that money is going to come from. And also inflation, Steve, we talked about that a minute ago, you know, 10 years down the road, um, you know, if you're, if you're spending $30,000, it's going to feel more like 23. Um, so you're going to have less, um, less money to spend. There are some solutions to this, and we're going to kind of walk through that as we close this segment. The first one we're not real excited about, but it is a possibility. True. Yeah, you could get guaranteed income from a, a life for life from an annuity. Um, that's not one of our favorite recommendations. Um, so we're not really recommending this option. You know, I mean, it won't account for inflation over long periods of time, and that's the you know problem with this option is it just really doesn't doesn't give you any inflation protection. You know, so it works for short periods of time. I don't think it's an option if you're planning for 20 or 30 years. Um, the second solution, though, here is education, you know, and this should start well before retirement. But if it hasn't, you know, I mean, don't worry, it's not too late. But you do need to go out and get some education and really understand the issues that are out there and understand some history and some context around your investments. You know, there are literally hundreds of websites that investors can access that will give them good basic educational investing but you know beware many of the sites have an agenda so you know if you're on an insurance company's website be aware they're probably trying to sell you insurance you know but it's best to, so it's best to look at some neutral sites that have a variety of information but go and research the history of the stock market the history of inflation understand all of that in context and have some some context around what asset classes in the stock market return what fixed income and bonds return what inflation is, and, you know, what you need to do to, to make a return above inflation. Yeah, and you combine that with, um, you know, having a good, a good diversified portfolio. We talk about that often. You know, if you do, if you do have an um, extreme loss aversion uh, and you can, you can get into some short-term bonds, high-quality bonds, mix them with some stock asset classes um, and be very diversified and then wrap that around a financial plan. Um, you know, having a roadmap, Steve, I think is a big piece of people's concern and, and just not understanding which direction they, they should go. But if you have a financial plan um, that looks into the future a little bit, does some projections, it builds in negative years, right? When we do financial planning, we build in negative years because it's happened historically and it's going to happen in the future. So um, that financial plan and that education, those two pieces together 
uh, are very powerful and it can help you, you know, avoid, um, that extreme loss aversion and, and have a, um, a more, you know, secure retirement, if you will, it's a little bit more stable and you don't have to worry about it quite as much. Yeah. It's a great topic really is. So you need to address that issue if you're just living in fear and kind of stuck in. Certainly give us a call if you have questions. Absolutely. And that brings us up here to the prescription of the week. Yeah. So Steve, getting that time of the year, people ordering, you know, a lot of packages you see on uh, the news media, how there are package thieves out there. And, Mm. um, you know, I think it particularly happens in neighborhoods. I mean, you and I live a little bit, uh, out, out in the country, country, I guess it could happen in our neck of the woods. But one of the suggestions is is maybe have your package delivered to your office, right? That's a good idea. It's not a bad yeah. idea. I'm not sure yeah. we want to start that here because, you know, you would you'd keep us busy here, I'm sure, with all the packages you <laughs> no, order. Right. Yeah, we don't want all that just yeah. piling up at the office. But that's an option. You know, take it to your office. Also, maybe enlist the help of a neighbor to pick up the packages or at right. least, you know, be on the watch out for it. Um, there's also something called package guard. This is interesting. It's where the package is actually put onto, um, a Frisbee sized device on your porch Hmm. and, um, you get a notice that it's there. And if someone ever took it, there's a hundred decibel siren that will ring. It'll go off and alert your neighbors and hopefully scare off the potential thieves. I guess I would. (laughs) hundred decibel siren. (laughs) Or you could, uh, you could get a, you know, a guard dog or, you know, right. Sit on your front porch in your PJs and wait for my poor FedEx. wife. Poor wife would come pick up the package to have a heart attack. <laughs> that siren goes off. Yeah, you may want to warn her of, of not to do that. To, right? Forgot to deactivate yeah. it, honey. So sorry. Yeah, Booby trap it. <laughs> yeah. So we have cameras in my house, you okay. know, and I mean, I, I just I'm big deal on security. I just think it's just smart, and I, I love video cameras because then you can really go back and see what happened and. So nobody's gonna come steal a package if you got cameras pointing yeah. you know, all the place. And so that's what we do. We the the person the delivery folks put it in the garage. We have a garage door we leave up, and yeah, you know, we can see who comes and goes and what they're carrying. There you go. There you go. So that's a prescription. So try to thwart those package thieves. Yeah, be careful about your packages. So, and I think at the office, you want to make sure you're home. You know, and in the office, they'd be delivering them after hours and yeah. uh, be sitting around. I don't think that's a cool idea. Yeah, you got to be so. careful with that. There you go. All right. Well, that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Do tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Smart Investor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.